Man, it's, it's good to be with you guys. I know most of you guys don't know who I am. My name is Jordan. Uh, thanks for introducing me, Tony. So I'm on staff with Salt City Church, which is the church that Salt Company is affiliated with. Yeah, you got some moves for Salt City. I appreciate that. Uh, it's, it's cool. You guys should come. Uh, but this is, this is fun for me uh, because I actually, my wife and I moved up to the Twin Cities to help start Salt Company up here five years ago. And so I remember when Salt Company was nothing but like a hope and a dream and a prayer. And now for it to be real is crazy. And, and not only that, but th there's two of them. Like I never would have guessed that that was gonna happen. And so uh, this is fun. And like, like Tony said, uh, yeah, I'm on staff now, but only for a couple more months. And then we're taking off. So this is kind of my like goodbye tour to Salt Company here. Uh, we're heading to West Lafayette and Purdue. I heard one like very minor woo, like one sympathy woo for Purdue. I, I appreciate that, guys. Thanks for having my back on that. But uh, here's the deal. I, I'm blown away by what God has done here, and I just want to watch him do it somewhere else. I love our lives here. I'm not leaving anything here. I just want to watch him do it again. And so I can't wait to go. Uh, but for tonight, it's, it's cool to be with you guys. I, uh, Tony was one of the first students that I ever met up here. So I, I've heard that some of you think Tony is old, uh, but I met him as like a marginally socially awkward sophomore. Uh, and Tony and I met up before we ever planted Salt Company. And by the end of the meeting, the dude was trying to give me like tips on social media and like a church planning strategy. And I was just like, what is going on, man? But the thing that I appreciated about Tony is he wanted to live his life for something that mattered. The dude just lived with a purpose. And uh, that's actually what we're talking about tonight, is what does it look like to live on purpose, to live for something that matters. And so uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Philippians chapter 1. We'll get there in a second. But if you want to start flipping there with me, grab your Bibles, your phones, whatever, you can start working towards Philippians. We'll get there uh, uh, in a second. But to start this out, Here's something I've learned about myself recently from some of my friends. Apparently, I am a man of hot takes, okay? Now, here's my take on that take. I don't have that many hot takes. Like, I don't have that many opinions. It's just when I do have an opinion, it's fully formed, all right? So a hot take that Tony and I share is about properly cooked meats. Guys, there is not options on how to cook meat. There's just right and wrong, and the right is medium rare, all right? End of discussion. That's how it's done. And if you're, like, if you're like, but Jordan, like I'm creeped out by the blood in the middle. I'm like, no, be better than that. You're college educated. It's not blood. It's a protein called mycoglobin. Okay, the reason it's pink is because it's been exposed to heat. It's showing that it is cooked, not that it's not cooked. All right, so properly cooked meats. Uh, I've got a Hallmark movies thing, uh, like a Christmas Hallmark movies, which is just they're, they're objectively horrible and shouldn't exist. I gave that one at... Uh, yeah, thank you. I know that one's more controversial. I gave that one at Salt City, and there was a girl that just stood up in the front row and started screaming at me as I was preaching about the importance of Hallmark movies, which I didn't see coming. Uh, here's a less important take, but it was, it was one of my, like, earliest hot takes that I wanted to give to you, and it's that pep rallies, like high school pep rallies, are stupid, all right? So, so all right, yeah, yeah, so here's the thing. I started out, did you guys all have the high school pep rallies, like going into like homecoming and stuff like that? So freshman year, as a lover of all things hype, I was about this, right? So I show up at my pep rally, 
and the band's doing their thing, and the cheerleaders, and the coach comes out, and he gives a speech, like, this is our year, we're going to do all this stuff, and everybody's kind of getting riled up, and the premise seems to be, if we get really excited, then we will be good at football, and so I'm fired up, because we were very excited, so it's like, we're going to win, so I show up to the game, I'm like, painted up, I'm ready to go, let's do this thing, and then we got beat by 40 points, (laughs) so then sophomore year, Sophomore year comes, it's pep rally time. And I'm like, all right, let's give this thing another shot. Coach gets up, he does his thing. This is our year. We got this. We've been prepping. Oh, you know, he's doing his thing. We're all fired up. Then we go and we get beat by 25 points because we were bad at football. And so I get to the pep rally junior year. I'm like, you know what? I don't think this works. Like, I don't think there's a correlation here between how excited we get and how good at football we are. The two actually aren't connected. Let me ask you something. Is Salt Company just a giant pep rally for Jesus? Here's what I mean. You come on Thursday nights to get all hyped up about Jesus, and then you go out and live exactly the same way that you were living before. Does what we're doing here actually impact anything about your life? Does Christianity work is my question. Does it actually change you? And what I want to tell you tonight is that Christianity can. It actually can transform everything about your life. I've I've seen that anecdotally in my life and in other people's lives, but I've seen the Bible claim that, that it actually can transform who you are. And if Christianity hasn't begun to radically change your life, it's possible that you haven't actually encountered the real thing. And if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, You should expect us to live differently as a result of what we claim. And I'm sorry if we haven't lived up to that. Now, you shouldn't expect us to be perfect, but you should expect us to live differently. Tonight, we're going to look at the example of this guy, the Apostle Paul. And we're going to look at how Christianity changed his life. So Paul went from a person who hated Christianity so much that he was murdering Christians to being a person who was martyred for his faith because he was so invested in it and his life had changed so much. So I want to ask the question, what happened to Paul? And I want to look at his life and I want to see if the same thing can happen to us. Can what transformed Paul actually change us today? So again, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, Tony talked last week about how we like to exegete the Bible at Salt Company, which just means to open it up and to teach right through it verse by verse, which we're very about it, but also uh, we got confused about which text I was going to teach today, and I prepped Philippians 1, 18 through 30, and I didn't realize that there was some other parts of it before that until it was too late, so we're just skipping verses 12 through 17, but they're great, guys. They're great verses. Go back and read them for yourself, but we're looking at Philippians 1, 18 through 30. I'm going to read a little bit of that to you right now. I'd love it if you would follow along. Remember, this is that guy that I mentioned, the Apostle Paul. He writes this, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, 
To live is Christ, and to die is gain. All right, so as we dig into this, I want to remind you guys of the context here. Tony talked about this last week, but Paul, as he writes this, is in prison. And there's a very realistic chance that he will never make it out of prison. He's not sure if he will live or die there in prison. And I want you to notice how he starts out this section of the letter. He starts it out by saying, I will rejoice. In in the book of Philippians, he mentions joy over and over and over again. Now, how does that work? How does a guy who is in prison write a letter about joy? That doesn't seem to make any sense to us. I just watched a movie where a guy went to prison, and I can tell you what he wasn't doing. He wasn't rejoicing. That's not what you typically do in prison. And so what's happening here for Paul? This This is really important. This flies in the face of all of your instincts and often what you're told. Here's what you tend to think about life, is that your joy, your ability to be happy and live a meaningful life is linked to your circumstances. Another way to put that is, if you're not happy, if you're not full of joy, it's because of the things that are going wrong in your life. But here Paul is proving that idea wrong. And here's what he's saying is true, is that joy is not found in the absence of pain, but in the presence of purpose. I think that's really important. I'm going to say it again. Joy is not found in the absence of pain, but in the presence of purpose. Living a joy-filled life is not necessarily living an easy and comfortable life. It's living a life that matters, a life that's for something significant. A life that's worth living, that's where you'll find joy. If you want to live a full life, you need a purpose that's worth giving your life to. Now, you're going to give your life to something. It's inevitable. Some of you are going to give your life to success, whether that's in the context of school, maybe it's work or career, maybe it's athletics. Some of you are going to give your life to approval. Maybe that's the approval of your parents. Maybe it's the approval of your friends. Maybe it's your own approval of your own standards. Some of you will give your life to money, and you'll try to find happiness there. But those are all just attempts to eradicate pain. They're just attempts to live a more comfortable life. But that won't cut it. You're too significant. Your existence is too important for that. You are too weighty for that. You need something more. You need something that matters. And here's what Christianity can do. It can change your life because it can give you something worth living for. Christianity can give you two things. It can change your perspective, and ultimately that perspective change can change your purpose. Christianity can change your perspective, and it can change your purpose. All right, let's get into this. Christianity can change your perspective. Again, verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So he says, I will rejoice for. So here's what that word for means right there. It means because. So he's going to give us the reason for his rejoicing. 
Now he says the reason for his rejoicing is that everything will turn out for his deliverance. Do you see that there in verse 19? He rejoices because he knows he will be delivered. Now that sounds like it's the opposite of what I just told you. It sounds like he's saying that he has joy because he knows his circumstances are about to change. But that's not actually what he's saying here. In order to understand what he means, we have to understand what he means and what he doesn't mean by the word deliverance. So we already said that Paul doesn't know if he will live or die. Therefore, deliverance here can't mean that he's anticipating for sure getting out of suffering or even death. So deliverance to Paul here can't mean the traditional way that we think about deliverance, that his circumstances will change. So what does it mean? Well, verse 20 tells us, if you look at that, it says that his eager expectation and hope is that Christ will be honored in his body. So to Paul, deliverance means having the opportunity to honor Christ in this life or in death. Honoring Jesus Christ is ultimately what Paul wants in this life. And because he will have the chance to do that, whether he lives or dies, that's why he's rejoicing. See, deliverance to Paul is honoring Jesus Christ. And that's why no circumstances can touch his joy. And if there's anything else that you live your life for other than Jesus Christ, circumstances will be able to touch it. I can tell you exactly how that will go. You'll live the rest of your life in insecurity and fear. Because anything else besides Jesus, you can lose in a moment. Career, you can work for it your whole life, it could be gone in a moment. A relationship, it can end. Your image and your reputation, one wrong move, And it's gone. And so here's what will happen if you spend your life trying to pursue joy in some of these other things besides Christ. Trying to pursue joy in the circumstantial realities of your life. Is instead of spending your life enjoying your life, you'll spend your life nervous that you're about to lose it. All right, so I've got... I've got two kids. They're some of my favorite human beings on planet Earth. They are just champions. So Joy is my daughter. She is one. Graham is my three-year-old, almost four-year-old. And Joy just absolutely terrorizes Graham. Just like beats up on him. And it's, and it's a little bit sad. And I do intervene. But it's also kind of funny because he's almost four and she's one. But she's just not afraid. And so Joy walks into the room And Graham gets, like, a little stressed out. Like, he loves her. He's, like, about her. He loves his sister, protects her. But dude is, like, stressed when she walks into a room. And in particular, when he has his toys. Because Joy walks into a room, sees Graham with toys, and she's like, I'm taking that toy. Like, that's, it's fun for her, right? And so the second that Joy walks into a room, Graham goes, don't take my stuff, Joy. And he he starts, like, trying to protect all of his stuff. He literally starts, like, piling up his cars in front of him, and he's just holding his arms around them, like, like hunkering down, like, don't take it from me, Joy. But here's, here's what happens 
is that Graham never actually enjoys playing with his stuff because he's spending the entire time trying to make sure that nobody's going to take it from him. And so he just spends his whole life like doing this, but not actually enjoying his stuff. This is what I'm saying, is if you put your identity, your purpose, your meaning, your joy in anything other than Jesus Christ, you will spend your life like that. You will spend your life hoarding whatever that thing is that you're so afraid of losing, trying to protect it, and you won't be able to actually enjoy that thing. You won't be able to find purpose or meaning in it because you'll be too busy trying to protect it than to enjoy it. But freedom from insecurity and fear looks like wanting something that can never be taken from you. What is it that can't be taken from you? Relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at the perspective Paul has of verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So let me unpack that statement a little bit about what that means and then I want to talk about why it's awesome. To live is Christ means that you are for Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 says that everything was made through Christ and for Christ. That all things were made not only by him but for his ends, for his purposes. You are included in that all things, therefore, your life is for Jesus Christ. Your talents, your abilities, your ambition, your intellect, all those things that you spent your life using to try to prop up your name and to distinguish you from other people, those things are for Jesus Christ. Your relationships, your past, your memories, your future, everything that will happen in your life moving forward. All of those things are not for you, they're for him. And the weight and significance of your life is in direct proportion to how much it revolves around the weight and significance of Jesus' life. That's what it means to live is Christ, that your entire life is for him. Now, what does it mean to die is gain? How could that possibly be true? That doesn't seem to make any sense. How could dying be gain? Because in dying, you're losing everything good in this life, your, your relationships, your, your future, all of those things. We, we all know what it's like to be afraid of death, so how could that possibly be gain? The answer is, is because when you die, if you are a Christian, you will immediately gain Christ. And he is the best thing about life, now and forever. And in him, you will have access to everything you've ever needed or wanted. You will see Jesus Christ face to face. And the fact that meeting him will be gain is evidence that his goodness is heavier, it's weightier than the goodness of everything else. Like if you took everything good in this world, all of your best memories, the most beautiful places on planet Earth, the best relationships that you had. Imagine you have one of those old-timey scales where there's two things and it kind of goes like this, right? And the heavier thing goes down. If you put all of those things on one side of the scale and you put Jesus Christ on the other side of the scale, Jesus is hitting the ground because his goodness is heavier, it's weightier, it's better than everything else in existence. 
That's what it means that to die is gain. Because what you're getting in death is Jesus Christ and in him is everything good. So here is what this means for you, this perspective that to live is Christ and to die is gain, is that as a Christian, you can't lose. You can't lose. Like no matter what happens, you can have what you ultimately want, Jesus Christ, because there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that's strong enough to pull you out of Christ if you've trusted in him. Not even you are strong enough to take you out of Christ. Not your sin, not condemnation, not Satan, not any powers, not anyone that accuses you. There's nothing that can pull you out of Christ. So if what you ultimately want is him, there's nothing that can ever take him from you. So you can have whatever you want, whether you live or die, whatever happens, even if you suffer, you can gain Christ. You can have what your life is for. And that makes you invincible because you never have to be afraid of losing the thing that's most important to you. That's what it says in verse 28. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. Fearlessness is a sign of salvation because it means that the reality of what you have in Christ and how safe you are in Christ has landed in your soul. So you don't ultimately have to be afraid of or worrying about anything in this life because you have him. Paul is saying that there's something weird about Christians, that you can't, you can't rattle them. Like no matter what you do to a Christian, they're just joyful they're full of hope. They're unafraid. How awesome would your life be if that was true of you? If you just stood in the security that nothing could take your ultimate hope for you, if you really were never afraid, how great would life be? What are you afraid of? Like, honestly, what produces an emotion of anxiety in you? Christianity counteracts that because Jesus is enough. He's enough. Even if you were to lose that thing, you still would have everything that you need or want in Christ. Having Jesus is enough because he's that good. That type of perspective changes your purpose. Christianity can change your purpose. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice that what he doesn't say is try to make a few epic decisions for Jesus in your life. Do a couple hyper-spiritual things and call it a day. No, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of Christ. Your manner of life means the day-to-day -day stuff of your life. The day-to-day -day living, let that be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think in this phase in your life where you're dreaming about what your life is going to be about, you can have a tendency to overestimate the importance of a couple decisions. Maybe where you're going to live or what your career you're going to have, what relationships you're going to have, whatever. And it can kind of paralyze you in fear. And you can overestimate the importance of those decisions. But you can forget about the importance of your daily little decisions. 
the substance of who you are as a human being. And what it means to live as Christ is that every piece of your life is about him, it's done for him, and it's done through him by his power. So let me just unpack quickly a few of those things in your day-to-day life that are for Jesus, where you can live a life worthy of the gospel. Your schoolwork, that's for Jesus. He cares about it. You can honor him through the way that you do your schoolwork. You can offer it to him as an act of worship to him. So do great work. Be thankful that you have experts in their field teaching you about the world that God created. Don't skip class. Or like, do every once in a while. Don't be like too rigid about it, but like, don't skip class a lot, right? Show up and do good work. Now, here's the thing that some of you need me to tell you is kind of the second thing. Like, I needed somebody in college, my friends needed somebody in college to tell me like, hey, like, show up to class, do good work. Some of you need me to tell you, hey, chill out. Like, school is not your identity. It's not your sole purpose in life. It will all be okay. You are a Christian, which means that your identity is in Christ, not the letter they write on your paper. So, so just, like, trust him. He, he's good. You're, you're okay. And so do good work. Don't do obsessive work. Your job. Colossians 3.23 says, do everything as if working for the Lord, not for men, which means that God is ultimately your boss. So even when your boss isn't in the room, your boss is in the room. You know what I mean? Like your, your human boss might not be there, but you still do great, hard, honest work because you're doing it for the name of Jesus Christ and he sees your work and he's honored by it. Where you live, live there for Jesus. Listen to me, God, millions of years ago, looked forward in time, and he wanted somebody to know about him. He wanted to demonstrate his love to a person that initially didn't know him. And so he created a strategy for that person to come to know Jesus. And you know what his strategy was? To put you in the dorm room next to them, in the apartment next to them. To put you by them so that you would tell them about the hope that you have, that you would be a representation of Jesus Christ on earth. And so go to somebody and tell them about Jesus and pray for the people that live by you, but at some point, quit praying, stand up, walk over there and tell them about the gospel. And is it scary and is it hard? Yeah, it's scary and it's hard, but it's worth it. It's worth it to stand in eternity forever with somebody that you introduced to Jesus. Your money, listen, guys, money will not make you happy. I promise you. I'm making more money than I made before. Now, I'm not making a lot of money. Like, I'm a pastor. I didn't get into that for the money. But I'm making more than, like, we were like rice and beans type thing early on. And I'm making more money now. It's fine. Like, it's fine. It's not a bad thing. But I'm happy now. I was happy then. Money will not satisfy your soul. You're suffering. That's for Jesus. Verse 29, Paul says that your suffering has been granted to you. That word granted seems so odd there. It's almost like he's talking about it like it's a gift. 
How can that be true? Well, his logic is that suffering is granted to you as an opportunity for you to display the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. And so in your suffering, instead of doubting, instead of questioning, instead of complaining, see it as an opportunity to demonstrate your hope in Jesus Christ. To believe that he's better at running the universe than you are. And so even if you don't understand that you'll trust him and you'll follow him, your suffering is for him. Now listen, that life that I'm talking about, it's a hard life, okay? It, that might sound kind of intense to some of you. I'm not saying it's not. It's a hard life, but it's also a good life. A joyful life is not an easy life. A joyful life is a purposeful life. So I'm telling you to do this stuff for your joy, to live a difficult life that matters because that's where you'll find joy. And if Jesus really is this good, why in the world would you hold anything back from him? Why would you not put your entire life in front of him and say, Jesus, it's yours. Do whatever you want with my life. And as you consider giving your entire life to him and for him, I want you to remember that Jesus went first. Before he ever asked you to give your life for him, he gave his life for you. Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. How can there be joy in a cross, an instrument of torture and death? The answer is, is because the cross was worth it to get you. He wanted relationship with you so badly that he counted the cross joy. God looked forward at the plan of he had to leave heaven, he had to come to earth, he had to be abandoned by his friends, he had to be mocked, and he had to be crucified. That's what it took to get you. Not the person in the seat next to you, I mean you. Regardless of your sin, regardless of your past, you. He looked at that and went, yeah, that's joy. It's worth it to me. I'll do it. And the amount of suffering that he endured in order to achieve you is a demonstration of the value that he places on you. How worth it it was for him to gain relationship with you. That is a God and a purpose worth living for. Worth both living and dying for. I want to go ahead and invite the band to, to come on up. I hear that's a thing you do here. So let's, let's do that. Um, so come on up, guys. When I first started following Jesus, I, I was trying to like sprinkle a little Jesus into my previously existing life. Just like add him into what was already going on in my life. But I quickly found out that there's not enough room for both. Like, there, like Jesus is too big for that. And so either Jesus goes or my previously existing life goes. And there was a while that I was struggling with that tension of the old sins and the old habits and the old desires, the old things that I was living for. And I was trying to figure out if it was worth it. But every once in a while, I'd have this moment of clarity where I would just see how good Jesus is. And I would see the meaning and the significance of the life that he offered me. And I would just go, yeah, that. Like, that's what I want to live my life for. And actually, the last time that I, I, I preached this text, 
Philippians 1, I remember I had just gotten back from the SALT conference, which is this big conference that happens every year where they talk about living for something bigger than yourselves and in particular church planning. And I remember sitting in that conference and, and being overwhelmed by this vision of what I could be a part of and just praying to God, like with my arms open like this, of just, God, like anything, anywhere, anyhow, anytime, you can do whatever you want with my life. And it was the most terrifying prayer I've ever prayed. I wasn't like full of faith and all this stuff. I was like freaked out because I knew God would answer a prayer like that. And here's what God did, is he eventually asked me to leave, to leave my friends that are here, to leave my church that I love here, and to pick up and to go somewhere else. And church planning is awesome, but it's hard. It's like one of the hardest things I've ever done. And now I'm going to go do it again for some other reason, for, for some unknown reason. And I don't want to in and of myself, but I feel like God is saying, just give me that. Give me your life. And here's what I've learned is every single time I say yes to Jesus, it's always worth it. I've never regretted anything that I've ever done for Jesus. I've only regretted the times that I've forgotten how good he is. And so this is what I'm asking you. Because it's right and because it's good, but also because it's the only place that you can find life. Would you tonight, right here, just lay your life on the table before Jesus and just say, anytime, anywhere, anything you want, you can have my life. It's for you. I trust you. You controlling your life is not safe. Jesus controlling your life is. Bow before him and give it to him. Let's pray. so often in my life that I don't actually live that message that I just preached or I get distracted by things that I think are better than you. Forgive me, Lord. Bring me back. Man, I just want to spend my life giving, giving my life away for you and so that other people can know you. Help me do it. And Lord, would Salt Company be a place like that where our lives are changed, where we don't just talk about following you but we're different. Empower us to be different. And God, I'm asking for the people in this room that have just been living for something else. Just invite them back home to the good life of following you. Not out of shame, not out of guilt, just an invitation to the good life. Lord Jesus, let us live with purpose because life is short eternity is long and only what's done in your name will last so Lord give us perspective give us purpose let us live differently amen